0: If you want to grab your Bible and take it and turn with me to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we're going to be there, and this morning we're going to talk about what it means to observe communion. And Many times we'll call it the Lord's Supper, but what does all of that mean? You know, Lord's Supper is a meal, and as we think about a meal... There's just something about a meal that can really make you feel right at home. There's also something about a meal that can give you the opposite type of feeling. It can make you feel out of place and not at home. I mean, you think about it, a few things are more comforting than home-cooked food with people you know and the people that you love. And at the same time, few things can make you feel like more of a stranger than eating food that you've never heard of with people you have never met in a culture with customs that you do not understand. Many times when we go overseas and we take people uh, to a certain place for the very first time, it's, it's really apprehensive. There's a lot of apprehension there because you just don't know what to do and what to eat or how to carry yourself. And so food has that peculiar way of bringing you in or giving you the feeling of being an outcast. If I were to ask, or somebody were to ask you today, you know, at Red Lane, do you guys ever eat a meal at church? And you would probably say something like, yeah, we, we occasionally have fellowship meals. We had one of those last Sunday after our worship service underneath the Pavilion. Or you might say, yeah, sometimes, uh, especially when one of our members passes away, we have a funeral here in the morning, and 11 o'clock is usually followed by a wonderful potluck lunch there in our fellowship hall, and we have a great time of fellowship together. And so, yeah, we eat together. But you may not think about communion being a meal that we are partaking together, and yet it is a meal. We are eating, we are drinking, we are seated together uh, around the Lord's table, if you will. And so as we think about that, we also know it's taken together with family and friends, but it's much different than a typical meal. You're not going to leave today full from that little wafer that's in the cup that you were given. You're not going to leave full from that little bit of juice that's in that little goblet that you took this morning. But this is a meal, and so what is this meal all about, and how are we to observe it as a follower of Jesus Christ? I want us to think about what it means together as we look at this passage in Acts chapter 8 in just a moment. But before we get there, let's look at and think about what the Bible tells us. You know, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 19 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Bible tells us that mankind, every human being that's been born from Adam and Eve, is born in a state of lostness, in a state of fallenness. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of his glory, have not met his righteous standards. In fact, the Bible would tell us that we have, in fact, rejected God's design over our lives, and so we are living in our sin in rebellion against holy God. You think about that, how does that even happen? Well, it happens because we have this sin nature, this rebellious nature that has been passed down from Adam to every subsequent generation to ours. It will continue to be passed down until the Lord brings an end to this world. But the Bible also tells us that there is hope that Jesus, God the Son, has come to make a way for rebellious sinners to be brought back into relationship, fellowship, communion with holy God. So how does that happen? How does a rebellious sinner come back into fellowship, come back into communion with the God he is in rebellion against. The very thought of a hater of God being embraced and welcomed into the family of God is as unimaginable as a chemist expecting oil and water to mix. Now, I'm not much of a chemist, but I remember those experiences. Experience, uh, experiments in, uh, in high school where you poured the oil into the water and they clearly separated. You would never expect the two to mix. Therefore, we also understand that sinful human beings cannot and will not be in fellowship with holy God. And yet, that is what the Bible teaches us. How does that happen? Well, the Bible itself is the narrative of how that takes place. The grand story of Scripture is all about the redemption of humanity and how that transpires, that God himself came to this world in God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, so that we as rebellious humans could be brought back in, grafted back in to the family of God. And today as we prepare ourselves as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to participate in the Lord's uh, Supper, in this communion meal, We would do well to remember what this meal is. You see, in the Old Testament, we read of all kinds of sacred assemblies. We discover that the people of Israel routinely held these sacred assemblies. They gathered to worship. These were official occasions where they would come and repent personal and corporate sins. They would remember God's blessings on them. They would anticipate future blessings upon them as his people. Sacred assemblies were times for God's people to confess and to do something with their sin. They were times to renew the covenant that they had with the Lord and with one another. They would reflect on the return of the Lord for them in faithful love and obedience to all that he said. These were times for worship. They were times for sacrifice. They were times for feasting and for fasting. God's people like us today had a tendency to stray. Have you ever thought about that in your own personal life, how prone you are to stray, how prone you are to walk at a guilty distance, that if you're not focused on the Lord and intentional on the Lord and and, and, and very uh, center-focused on how you're going to live your life, then you will tend to get off the track. And so that was the same with the people of Israel. And sacred assemblies were opportunities for them to remember and celebrate God's gracious activity in their lives. The Lord's Supper... Is a ceremonial meal whereby we remember as God's people, whereby we celebrate the grace of God in our lives. It is built upon one of those Old Testament sacred assemblies, the Lord's, or I should say, the Passover meal. There in the upper room, when Jesus celebrated this Passover with his disciples, they set there the table with bitter herbs, they brought in the unleavened bread, they had four cups of wine. The roasted lamb was then brought to the tables. The twelve disciples gathered around that little table with Jesus in the upper room. Little did they know this would be their last Passover meal that they would ever eat with their master. The Passover celebrated and remembered the grace of God and the deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And how did that How did that deliverance take place? Well, Moses told them to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood, and put it over the doorpost of the house so that when the angel of death came, bringing that last plague upon Egypt, it would pass over the people of God, and it symbolizes what Jesus, through his blood, would do for us. So Jesus took the Passover meal and he grafted it into this new celebration for his children, for his people, for his church. We call it the Lord's Supper or Communion. And so Jesus brought a fulfillment to this sacred meal. In it, we reflect upon his great sacrifice. We think about the great price that he paid to bring us into fellowship with God the Father. And so what is it that brings sinners into communion, into fellowship with holy God? We find the answer in many places in Scripture. But this morning, we're going to look at this very famous, very more than likely you know this story, but a very famous passage in Acts chapter 8 here in acts chapter 8 we see philip philip is a deacon philip is an evangelist because of the persecution broken that's broken out in chapter 6 and 7 philip and others have left jerusalem they've went down philip goes north to samaria he preaches the gospel many people are coming to christ and god tells him to get up and go to a desert road that he would show him he winds up over on the desert road leading into Gaza, and he meets a man, an Ethiopian eunuch, who's been to Jerusalem, headed back to Ethiopia. He's bought a copy of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. He went to Jerusalem to seek God, but apparently didn't find God, and yet God is seeking him. He sends Philip to this, to this caravan, to this man, and as Philip walks up along this caravan, the man's reading from prophet from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 3, which is the Messianic chapter, talking about Jesus and what Jesus would do. And Philip asked him a question. You understand what you're reading? And he says, how could I unless someone teaches me? He invites him up into the chariot, and Philip preaches the gospel. The man hears the gospel, believes the gospel, is saved and is baptized. And I want us to use that to talk about communion this morning, So if you've got your Bible, let's read some of the verses that I just alluded to. Acts chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 29. The Bible says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with his scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, let me just stop for just a moment. The next verse, probably in your Bible, is going to jump from 36 to 38. But I bet there's some sort of footnote there that says, Look down at the bottom. And in the bottom of your footnotes, it's going to show a verse 37. Verse 37 is in later manuscripts. So so it wasn't in, from what we can tell, the earliest manuscripts. But I believe it's the heart of what the Ethiopian eunuch believed because he wanted to be baptized. And so I want you to look down at your footnote, and this is what it says. And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then verse 38. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Well, pastor, you said we were talking about the Lord's Supper. Why are we talking about baptism? Well, the two work together. There's two ordinances that Jesus gave the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is that initial sign. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in just a moment. But it's that initial identification with Christ and with his church. It's one-time deal when you come, become a believer, you follow it with believer's baptism, by immersion, and then the outward expression of this identity that you have in Jesus is routinely then personified in the Lord's Supper. The two work together. And so here what we read in Acts chapter 8 is Philip comes up to this man in his caravan, And he tells this Ethiopian that God had created him for himself. The Bible tells us here that he preached the gospel. He took that passage in Isaiah 53 and he preached the gospel to him. What's in the gospel? Well, I think as we talk about the gospel, we clearly see that God is our creator. That he's created us with a special design, specifically designed to be in relationship with himself. Philip explained that God had a design for this man's life. He told him that if he would live within that design, then he could experience all the blessings that God wanted to give him. Unfortunately, the Ethiopian, just like you and me, had sinned. He had fallen short. He had fallen short of that design. He was living even in rebellion against that design. He was sinful. His rejection of God was sin, and sin separates one from God. The man's sin and his separation from God created brokenness in his life. You see, in my sanctified imagination, I can see the Ethiopian eunuch there listening to what Philip's talking about him, this God, this God design on his life, and talking about the brokenness. And he can say, absolutely, I understand the brokenness. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been seeking God because there's something missing in my heart. There's something missing in my life. And I went to the holy city of God expecting to find it. I didn't find it there, but I bought a book of Isaiah, and I'm going back now because I've got work to do, and I'm trying to find something to fill the void, fill the brokenness in my life. See, all of us understand the brokenness that sin brings to our lives. So Philip explained that God uses the brokenness to get the man's attention, to create a desire for something more. Philip told him there was nothing he could do to fix the brokenness himself, but God had done something To do just that. Philip told the man that Isaiah spoke of the Messiah, the one who would come to fix his brokenness, the one who would come to cleanse his sin. This is the good news of the Bible. Philip explained that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the one who came to earth to die in his place as a substitute, to offer his life as a sacrifice. Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was buried in the grave, but on the third day he rose from the dead. Now because of that sacrifice, now because of that resurrection, this man could be forgiven of all of his sin. He could recover and pursue the design God has for his life. Philip told this man that knowing what Jesus had done was not enough. You see, there's something we need to understand when we look at the gospel and we read it in the Bible. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to know that Jesus is God. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross. It's not enough to know that Jesus' blood can atone and cover your sin. It's not enough to know that Jesus was buried in a tomb. It's not enough to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not even enough to know that Jesus is coming back. But there has to come a point in our lives, like this man, when you stop believing in theory and you say, I want that practically my life not believing in jesus but believing on jesus and that's what the ethiopian eunuch did driving along there and somehow in this desert arid area he comes across some water and the man says hey let's stop this chariot there's some water what would prevent me from being baptized and i love how verse 37 lays it out even though it's not in the early manuscripts it's the heart of what would have taken place and philip says nothing absolutely nothing can stop you If you will believe upon Jesus as your Lord and say, if you'll turn from your sins, if you'll trust Him for the brokenness, the healing of the brokenness of your life, nothing can stop you. And in that moment, He gave His heart and His life to Jesus as it's personified in the baptism taking place there in the water. This high ranking court official from Ethiopia heard the gospel, placed his faith in Jesus, and publicly identified with Christ through baptism. So here's a question I want us to wrestle with for the next few minutes. What is it that brings sinners into communion and fellowship with holy God? I believe the answer is what we've already been saying. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus there on the cross and his resurrection from the dead are the only things that bring rebellious sinners into relationship with God. And the Lord's Supper is the way, uh, this beautiful picture uh, of this gracious, wonderful sacrifice of Jesus for us. You see, the bread represents the body of Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body. And so as Jesus hung there on the cross, God the Son hanging On the cross for us, never having sinned a day in his life, having no understanding, no personal experience with sin. He bears our sin in his body. And the Bible tells us that God the Father exhausts his wrath upon your sin, but not on you. He exhausts it on his son. The body of Jesus bore our sin. And the Bible tells us that his blood was shed. In fact, Hebrews 9 would tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so that's the reason Jesus' blood was shed, so that your sins could be forgiven. He's that perfect sacrifice. He's the fulfillment of all of the Levitical law, all of the sacrifice in the Old Testament. He is the atoning sacrifice for humanity. Because of his death there on the cross, our sins, which are like scarlet, are made as white as wool. They're like the snow that falls in the winter. So with that understanding, how are we to approach this communion meal. Three things. We approach communion, number one, in relationship with Jesus. I know of a young man who years ago did everything he could to be in relationship with Jesus. Went to church, served, gave, uh, taught Sunday school, did all the things that you would do as a good Baptist, things you would do as a good Christian, and, and yet there still seemed to be this void in his life. There still seemed to be this missing part in his life. and It didn't matter how much religion he tried to cram into that hole, how much things he tried to cram into that hole, he still was felt he left empty and, and felt like there was something missing in his life. You see, the thing that was missing was Jesus himself. Religion is never enough. And as we read this passage here in the story in Acts chapter 8, what is Philip not doing or not advocating to this Ethiopian high-ranking court official? I think it's interesting and significant that he's not telling the man, man, if you would just be more religious, things would be good. What you need to do is go to the temple more often. You're leaving Jerusalem. You need to turn this caravan around and go back to Jerusalem. You need to hang out in that court. You need to go to the corner of the Gentiles where you'll be accepted, and you'll be close to the presence of God. That's not what he says at all. Philip preaches the gospel to him. Why? Because it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And as we approach communion, as we approach the Lord's Supper, it is a meal signifying and portraying the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And so when we partake of it, we partake of it in relationship with Jesus Christ. Not in religion with Jesus, but in relationship. Religion will never make you right with God. But when you turn from your sins, you confess and repent from your sins, and you turn to Jesus, and you make him Lord and Savior of your life, that's what changes. That's what makes the difference in everything. We approach the Lord's Supper in relationship with Jesus. You say, I don't know about that, Pastor. Well. We're going to get to 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 1 Corinthians 11 in just a moment, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul there is is talking to a church that's in turmoil, and one of the things that they're in turmoil over is the Lord's Supper. They're actually misusing what we're going to do this morning. They approached it in a gluttonous manner. They approached it in a drunken manner. They went there to get uh, fat, and they went there to get slobber-knocked. That's the way they came to the Lord's Supper. I don't think we're going to have that this morning with that little bitty wafer and that stuff that's not even fermented that's in that goblet. But that's the way they approached it. And so Paul addresses this, and what do we know about that? He's speaking to believers. So that tells us right there that the Lord's Supper is something for believers, it's to be partaken of by those who are in relationship with Jesus Christ. This meal is reserved for those who are in relationship with Him. It's not a religious ritual meal, it's nothing that's going to make you more pleasing before God. It's a meal of remembrance where we're confronted with the reality of sin and a Savior. It's meant to lead you to a place of celebration, to a place of sanctification, which cannot happen if you've not yet come to a saving knowledge, confession of your sin, and repentance. Secondly, we approach and we come to the Lord's Supper. We come to the communion in identification with Jesus and His church. You see, when the Ethiopian eunuch responded to the gospel in faith, The first thing he wanted to do was publicly identify with Jesus through baptism. The early church, think about this, knew nothing of a person's confession that was separated from baptism. You ever thought about that? Every time you see with the exception of the thief on the cross. I think that may be the only exception. But in the New Testament, every time you see sinners coming into relationship with Jesus, in other words, they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel, they're putting their faith in Jesus, it is in step with baptism. Many times it's simultaneous. Many times the profession of faith is the baptism itself. Now we today in America, especially in in evangelicalism and, and Baptist evangelicals at that, we want to push against those who would misuse or misunderstand baptism as a mode of salvation. In other words, that salvation comes through the act of baptism. And so we would say there needs to be a clear profession of faith and there needs to be a clear baptism. And we separate the two and they should be separated. But the New Testament. Many times they're almost simultaneous, yet you're not saved through baptism, you're saved through your profession of faith and repentance of sin, right? So I think we've done ourselves a, dis, a, a, a disservice by undervaluing baptism, almost saying you don't need to be baptized, but I believe you do, not for salvation, but by identification just like was taking place in the early church. You see, baptism is the way we as the local church affirm someone's discipleship. That's the way we affirm someone being in a relationship with Jesus. We see a clear delineation of the old life and the new life. And by baptizing, we're affirming Jesus has changed this individual's life. And so if there is no baptism, then there's no true identity in that local level. And so we approach communion in identification with Jesus and with his church, and this takes place through baptism. So why are believers baptized is a question we ought to think about. It is the public demonstration of this inward change in the person's life. It pictures the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We baptized last Sunday... I had the privilege of doing that, and so as I baptized those ladies, I took them down under the water. It's a picture of Jesus dying and being buried. I brought them up out of the water. It's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus and the life that he offers. It's also a picture of them personally dying to Christ or dying in Christ, dying to their sin, and now being raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And so it pictures and preaches the gospel. Baptism is also how the local churches I said earlier affirms that profession of faith and identifies him with or her with the Lord Jesus. Baptism is also the way a believer shows up on the church and the world's radar. It's a way of identification, knowing that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, in some places in the world, like where we go this fall in South Asia, it's dangerous to be baptized. Those people are going to be leaving their Hindu Lifestyle. They're going to be living, leaving their Hindu family and friends in many ways. And so it's dangerous to step out and what they call take baptism because it's clearly a delineation that this is the way I used to live and now this is the way I'm living in Christ. So it is an identification for the believer. Communion, then, is how we as the church regularly renew our profession of faith in Christ As I said earlier, it's the way we repeatedly reaffirm our commitment to the Lord and to his family. And so for this reason, since the early church baptized believers when they placed their faith in Christ and practiced the Lord's Supper, we today should follow suit. We approach the Lord's Supper as a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, fully identified with Christ and his church. Thirdly, we approach communion in fellowship with Jesus. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 11 earlier. I want to read just a few verses from there and kind of paint the picture of what was taking place there in this very troubled church. Listen to verse 27 through 32. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread of bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What's going on here? Paul here warned the Corinthian believers to not approach the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so he would warn us today to not partake of this meal in an unworthy manner. In other words, to not approach this meal with unconfessed sin. Not approach this meal with an unrepentant heart, with uh, with the unwillingness to, to walk away from sin or anything that would lead us astray from the Lord, but instead to confess that, to lay it before the Lord, receive forgiveness, and be renewed. So this morning, we should examine ourselves, as Paul says, we should look for those actions and habits. We should take notice of those strongholds in our lives that need to be confessed to the Lord and repent of them, turn from them. As we observe communion together, we do so with, in fellowship with Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we first look to the cross because the bread and the juice represent Jesus giving himself for us. We look around at our faith family, the church. This is the church's meal. It seals our fellowship with Christ and one another. We look ahead to the coming of Christ's kingdom, knowing that Jesus will return one day. And we look inward and back to the cross. You see, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful and appropriate time to examine ourselves and confess our sins before the Lord. Because the gospel continues to save us. If you haven't taken notice yet, but the forgiveness of the Lord, His forgiveness is, re- is readily available. The very point of communion is to point us back to the gospel that reconciles us. It's not to condemn us, it's to bring us to a plate of reconciliation. By not doing this and approaching this holy meal in an inappropriate way, what Paul says here is we are actually bringing further judgment upon our lives. So we want to be perceptive of where we're at. So before we partake of this meal, I'm going to ask three questions. I want you to think about these and then we're going to move into just a time of response. We're going to do this different this morning. I'm not going to ask for you to come forward. I'm not even going to ask for you to stand this morning at first. But I want to ask you three questions. I want you to think about these. First of all, if this morning you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ... Has there been a moment in your life in the past, perhaps even this morning, there's been a moment, as we've talked about this, that you've understood that there's never been a moment, there's never been a day, there's never been that time where you have knowingly and willingly turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, the Lord's is not for you. But the gospel is. And so us passing the elements or taking of these elements this morning, it's not to... to, to, uh, to, to hurt you. It's not to do anything to to harm you. It's simply, it's the gospel being preached because this is a meal for those who are in relationship with Jesus. So if that's not your identity this morning, I would call you to faith and repentance, turning to Jesus, receiving all that he has for your life. Has there ever been that moment when you knowingly and willingly have given your life to Jesus? You've believed on him for salvation. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, have you identified with him and his church through baptism? Perhaps this morning you're sitting here and you can go back to that moment in your life as a teenager, a child, sometime as an adult, that you understood your sinfulness, your heart was broken over that sin, you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and you were saved. But for whatever reason, you've not taken that next step, that first step of obedience, and you've been baptized. Post-conversion. Post-conversion. Baptism is always after your conversion. It's always by water immersion. And so if that's not you this morning, the Lord's Supper, I would say, is not for you. As a church, we would say it's not for you this morning. But what is the gospel, or what's the Lord's Supper doing to us? It's preaching the gospel. It's calling you out to the need in your life to be baptized. We can set that up in the days ahead. The rest of us who are in relationship with Jesus Christ, we've identified with Christ and with His church through baptism. I would ask you this Are you in fellowship with Jesus? Is there any sin that would cause you to walk at a guilty distance? Any unconfessed, unrepented sin that would cause you to walk behind and not walk in step with the Lord? You're off the path, you're off the journey, you're doing your own thing, and you know it, but you've not turned from that sin and received forgiveness. This morning, Based upon what Paul warned the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, I would say that unless you're willing to repent of your sin, even today, the Lord's Supper is probably not for you. But those are three questions we need to wrestle with. Am I in relationship with Jesus? Am I in identification with Jesus through baptism in his church? And am I in fellowship with Jesus Christ this morning? Or is there sin blocking that fellowship? I'm going to ask Ricky to come and just begin to play. And we're going to just move into a time of response. And this is different for us. I understand. Usually we're going to play music and we're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to beg you to come forward, but I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm just going to ask you to sit in the quietness of your seat while the music's playing over you. And I want you to wrestle with those three questions Do I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Have I been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or as a follower of Jesus Christ, is there some sort of besetting sin, unrepentant sin that I'm not willing to deal with? And if any of those are the case, here's what I want you to do. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's what all you need to do. Call upon the Lord. Father, I believe that you're holy. I believe that you created me. I believe you created me for yourself. I also believe what the Bible tells me, that I'm a sinner and my sin has brought judgment upon my life. It separated me from you, but you love me so much that you sent your son to die in my place, to take my sin upon himself so that I could be forgiven, cleansed from my sin. Today, by faith, in faith, I turn from my sin, I turn to Jesus, become the Lord and Savior of my life. You don't have to pray those words, but that sort of sentiment In the quietness of your seat, if that's where you are this morning, I want you to pray that to the Lord. And the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin. This morning, if you're a believer and you've never been baptized, maybe that's what you need to pray to the Lord. Father, I'm in a relationship. I know the date. I know the time. I know when it happened. I can understand the circumstances. But I've never taken that first step. Lord, help me after this service to talk with Pastor James or one of the elders or someone. And let's go ahead and get baptism scheduled. Maybe you're a believer you are saying, Father, I, I realize that there's sin in my life, and I'm not been willing to deal with it. And I've been feeling that for a long time, and I need to deal with it. I want to deal with it today. And what pastor just said when he quoted 1 John 1, 9, he was faithful to confess sin. God is faithful and righteous to forgive sin. Lord, forgive my sin. Take it from me. Make it as far as the east is from the west. And thank you that you remember it no more.